Welcome back, everybody, to part two of episode four with Lou Velozzi. If you're just coming into this now, make sure you listen to part one that came out Monday. As we promised, we're going to get right into this. We're not going to waste any time. So here we go. Episode four, part two, Lou Velozzi. Everybody's got it. When I was a detective or when I was a state trooper, there's always the people more worried about where their next yeah. break is rather than where yep. their next case, you know? Let's talk a little bit about that because you started getting into what now are called storefront operations. So let's set the stage for everybody because this is really one of the interesting things. This comes out of your book proposal. Um, but I did some research on it too, on some of the things, uh, you know, that you were involved in. And it's what's really fascinating. This is a great, this is a magnet. This is a ship magnet. This is getting people to come to you. So talk about when you started doing this, what was the problems you were trying to solve and why a storefront operation? What was so unique about them that you, because talk about too, because it's not cheap to do a storefront no. operation. Well, I can tell you exactly why Morgan, uh, because of cases that I had been doing, uh, and I, like, uh, you know, I got my first big break kind of on the national scale when, uh, two guys who were legendary, uh, my, my mentor, Chris Bayless out of Chicago and Jay Dobbins out of Arizona, they gave me the call. Uh, I want to say it was maybe 99, 1999 or something to, to go out, uh, to do my first big case, uh, with them. Um, you know, I'd been doing everything locally up to that point. And then, uh, you know, they had heard a little bit about me and through my partner who vouched for me, they gave me the call and went out there. Uh, Dobbins had already done the majority of it. It, it was one of these awesome cases, Steve, you know, those cases that got a little bit of everything. It, it was a crew. They were, they were making bombs. Um, they were doing home invasions. They were, um, there was dope meth involved and all that. So it was just one of those great, like all in one cases. Uh, he had already worked his way in them. So we went out for like the last two weeks of it. Cause he had told them about his crew and the whole deal. And he had, I mean, he had the bad guys pick us up at the airport. So when I landed, you know, we were in roll when we landed, they picked us up, brought us back to the spot. Uh, and again, it was my first kind of national exposure. Uh, I almost messed the whole thing up at a strip joint. Um, and, and never got an invitation back, but so, so, uh-huh. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't throw something like that out without let's cl Okay. Close the loop on this. What happened and where? Well, you remember when I told you one thing that always messed guys up was to, to send a, a, a female over there to kind of rub on them and stuff to get a guy out of his. So, so, uh, the night before the takedown, it was a home invasion takedown. Uh, you know, so on a, on a home invasion, I, I don't want to give any techniques up on home invasion, but there's always a last meet with the crew to finalize. And again, finalize the plan for the home invasion, which are almost always at, at stash houses and to give them one last out, just like a murder for hire, right? Say, Hey, listen, you guys sure you want to do this? So, so kind of to throw a bone to the, uh, to our SRT, to the SWAT team, uh, Jay, Jay arranged to have it at a strip joint in Tucson. So the SRT guys who are usually, you know, like in their green khakis hiding in a tree or something, they got to dress down and go to a strip joint and blend in uh, while we met with the crew, with the bad guys. So, uh, yeah. 
I can already see yeah. this is going south. So, <laughs> and you know, I'm I'm the new guy because I've only been on at this point for two or three years with ATF. So, uh, and, and the three other guys, Jay Dobbins, uh, Chris Bayless, and John Carr, Babyface. You know, the, these guys are already they're already legends. So, so Jay thought would thought it was funny to give me the recording equipment to have me wear the recording equipment, and and this was still in the net. The Nagra days. You remember those, Steve? The Nagras? Oh, oh those, yeah. I, yeah. I remember them, too. Those re- little That's reel-to-reels right. and stuff. So, yeah. really, the only way... That would burn a hole on your body exactly. wherever they were at. And, Absolutely. And, and this is hot. Tucson, right, in the summer. So, the only place... Everyone's wearing shorts and T-shirts. To put it was in my crotch, right? Oh. So, you know, you got to hide your gun. You got the Nagra. You know, so, uh, so, I was uncomfortable. Is that a nagger, or are exactly. you just happy to see me there, son? <laughs> oh. So, you know, I was a little uncomfortable, and they knew it. And uh, so we're in there, and, and we, uh, we're meeting with the bad guys and all that. And so Jay gets a girl, one of the dancers, one of the ladies, and uh, sends her over to me and tells her to give me a lap dance, right? So now oh, I got a girl sitting in my lap. I got my gun and the nag and all this shit. And so, so here, here's what I came up with, uh, right? About 30 seconds in, in the dance, I say, I tell her, I say, listen, I'll tell you what. I said, whatever he paid you for this lap dance, I'll double it. I said, I want you to go over there and finish this song. So here's whatever it was, 20 bucks or 30 bucks. I said, but one little thing, I said, he's kind of kinky. I go, he gets turned on if you give him a little shot. I said, give him a little shot in the face. It'll turn him on. So, you know, a stripper, they'll do anything for, for more cash, right? Okay. Oh, so yeah. she goes right back over to Jay and starts dancing. Well, what I hadn't noticed was that she was wearing all these rings on her hand. Uh-oh. So she, Uh-oh. she shakes her ass for him for a little while. And then instead of a little slap, like I told her, she comes off with this Mike Tyson right hook. And oh, now, Jay, if you ever seen Jay, he's got very high cheekbones, never could have been a boxer. She busts him wide open. I mean, when I say wide open, oh. splatters everywhere. Oh, my gosh. Now, to say he's pissed off would be an understatement. So oh, the next thing, he's now... I, he, he, he goes in the bathroom, the ATF medic on the SRT team who has his little kit hidden. I go in the bathroom to apologize and he's in a stall getting sutured by the medic. I mean, it, it was wide open, right? I mean, he wears, oh he gosh. wears a scar to this day. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm fucking done. I will never get an invite again. Right. I fucked up. So. We we go to the the takedown actually goes goes very well right we we ride Harley's up there it's it's out in the desert it's really cool helicopters the whole deal and they take this crew down and I'm at the airport after with uh, with Chris Bayless and I said well I said I'll tell you what I had a great time and I I appreciate it I said I realize I, I will never be invited uh, back in the in the mix again and and Chris was like listen <laughs> shit happens. He said, all the shit that has happened, he goes, that is minor. He said, Jay will get over it. Don't worry. Now, now the next day, he wads up, right? And he has to explain to his <laughs> wife. I mean, he is wadded up, uh-huh. blown out to here. He has to explain this to his wife, the whole deal. Um, but 
he, you know, I did get, the, I did get an invite again and, and he, he got over it. Uh, we, we now laugh about it. I had him on our podcast and we laugh about it now. Um, but so, you know, <laughs> Yo, we help right. What, what was his reaction when he got the right hook from Mike Tyson, the hooker in the bar? What did he do? He was fucking pissed. I mean, he was ready to, he was ready to fight. I mean, and I mean, he was pissed. There's no, I can't even sugarcoat it. He was fucking pissed. <laughs> and that you, means, the hooker. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this is a guy who'd been through a lot, right? He was shot on his first day on the job, uh, run over by oh, a car. Yeah, yeah. He's a guy yeah. who's been through a lot. Uh, did a, you know, he wow. actually, after that, he, uh, he did a great job infiltrating the hell's angels, wrote a great book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah he is. So, so I was working on those, those kinds of cases, uh, which, and like I said, Jay had already put in, I don't know, eight or nine months with these guys. And then, you know, I, I did a few of these biker cases and a a few of these long-term, uh, infiltrations with street gangs, which were so labor intensive and you're always Everybody hates you in the office because you're you're having to have a cover team. Steve, you've been there, right? And and oh, you yeah. know yep. it's at night. Yep. It's never at a good time, right? The cover you know it never starts at nine in the morning. So all these cases I was doing were were so labor intensive and and so long, and the bang for the buck wasn't always there, especially these biker cases where you know guys we we have guys who've done some incredible jobs. They've done three years with these. But, and then, you know, you wrap up maybe 20, 25, uh, full patch guys. And I, I don't know. I, I always knew there was something that would give me more bang for the buck. So as I'm going through my career and I start doing these long-term street gang infiltrations where I would always, I say infiltration, but I always hit these guys from the outside. Sal Nunziato was, was a gun runner right? He was a guy who you wanted to do business with, but I wasn't trying to get into this gang, right? You know, these guys, they didn't want me, but they wanted to deal with me, right? And that... Mm-hmm. that you offer, you'd absolutely. offer a service for them. So, you know, if they can make money off you and, you know, be involved in your hustle, they love that. And it, and it was easier to do than to, tr- as opposed to living with these guys, you know, you had to live with them for a few years before they trust you and all that. You know, I was hitting these guys from the outside. Uh, and so one day I get a call from an agent in Augusta and he says, Hey, the, uh, the police here are setting up a storefront operation. They flipped, uh, a guy who's a tattoo artist and they're going to set up a tattoo shop. He said, but obviously they don't have the undercover resources. Would you be interested? I never said no, right? Absolutely. I knew nothing about storefronts. Uh, you know, the, I knew what the concept was. But uh, again, and I, I, and I want to say, and I say this in my book, this was not an ATF-created uh, operation. This was the Richmond County Sheriff's Department, which are the police in Augusta, Georgia. It was their brainchild, man, and, and they're, they're doing. Uh, as usual, they, they brought in the feds because of, our resources, you know, uh, I mean, these guys, they're great police department. So that, that was my, that's how I got into it. And, uh, you know, to fast forward, we set up this tattoo shop, uh, with this incredible informant. Now, is this where a lot of your tattoos ended up coming from? He, no, 
because when I say incredible, he was an incredible informant, but not an incredible tattoo artist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he was a ghetto tattoo artist. He was more the prison right? variety. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what he was. And that's how we knew everybody. So, uh, you know, we do this operation uh, and it wasn't even a year. I think we were up and running for maybe 10 or 11 months and we bought 430 crime guns off the street and wrapped up wrapped wow. up over 100 defendants and i knew right i said man this is bang for the buck right here and they are coming to us uh and, and so that's that's really how i got my start and what i did and and i, I say what i did and what we did my team and i we took that that model okay we saw what we did wrong what we did right and we improved it every time and we got bigger and better with every case up until the last one i did and eventually i traveled the country helping people set these up what i did at the end you know it was a, a actually a freight forwarding business it was an import export business at the port and we were able to get into uh Bolivian gun smugglers. I mean, we were able to get into the, the biggest stolen car network on the East Coast. So, so we kind of took the storefront concept and made it bigger and better every time. And it really, it, it was a phenomenal decade. Uh, these, almost a decade that these things ran. But like everything, it got messed up. Congress took a disliking to them, uh, mistakes were made, and they came to the end, which is the only reason why I'm out talking about them, because it will never be one again. Right. And that's, but, but one of the things that you did, and, and of course, we say this, a lot of people say I, but when we say I, especially on shows like this, we always mean there's people involved with this. Nobody does no. this by themselves. This myth of the one riot, one ranger, you go out by yourself and John Wayne it, yep. just doesn't exist when you do stuff like this. But one of the things I saw you do and I thought was really interesting is you kind of perfected the art of street yes. theater. In other words, a great way to establish instant credibility. What's street theater? All right. And again, uh, Morgan, I didn't, guys uh, before me really created and perfected it. I used it. Uh, with the help of these guys. Um, well, let's talk about Sal Nunziato's, you know, uh, you know, version of street theater, right? By the way, too, before you get Sal Nunziato, okay, now we got to talk about this name. Now you're not lose, using Lou anymore. Now you're using Sal and you're using Nunziato. So what's the origin of that? Because that's going to be a good character in these storefronts. So Nunziato was a, is a, uh, a, a, was a family name where I grew up. Uh, and there was a whole bunch of Nunziatos running around. So I just always liked the name. I thought it was cool. Salvatore is a big family name in my family. Uh, it's my brother's name, uh, his middle name. And my, uh, I just have a ton of family members named Sal, Salvatore. So I just took, took one of my family names and a family name from the neighborhood and, and mixed them together and came up with Sal Nunziato because it sounded like a bad motherfucker. It ends in a vowel, first rule, it ends in a vowel, right? So let's talk about setting up this next one, right? Because let's talk about the street theater, though. So tell people what is street theater and why that was so imp why that was so incredible in terms of a way to really accelerate the operation. Our, our incredible success almost in, in every storefront uh, that we did, that my team did, was based on street theater. Uh, so... There's a lot of things you have to do to keep a storefront going and running and keep everything believable. We use street theater as our primary uh, technique, our tool 
to not only bring in more and bigger bad guys, but to keep it believable. So street theater is when you bring in other undercover agents from anywhere in the country to conduct transactions with you, with us as undercovers, in front of bad guys, using bad guys as security for the transactions. So what I would do now, now the, we had something in the ATF called the Mr. Big scenario where there was always one, one big guy who sometimes would come in on a plane or, or a helicopter, or whatever. That was Mr. Big. So we kind of used the Mr. Big. I would pick one guy who would be Mr. Big who would come in and he would be uh, buying maybe 20 machine guns or, uh, you know, five kilos from me or whatever it was. Uh, we like to use kilos usually because to get that 924C charge on the guys helping us. Um, so um, you're using that you're using that language again. Tell people what a 924C is for for those who aren't feds. Okay, 924C is uh, when a criminal uh, possesses a gun in furtherance of the commission of a drug crime. And that was good for what five years usually at a minimum. That's an extra five years on top of whatever else uh, the drug crime was. Uh, yeah. Correct. It was never combined. So uh, that's right. It's run, it's run consecutive. Correct, Steve? Yeah. So, uh, so I would, let's say, I'll, just, I'll give you a quick example. It's the easiest way. I would call three guys, right? Say, let's say I had a street, a street gang coming into the, who just started trickling in at the storefront that I was, I was working on, right? So I would tell you, I, I would find some heavy hitters among these guys and I would tell them, I'd say, listen, I got some bikers I'm dealing with. I don't trust these guys. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, they're buying three kilos off me. I need this deal, deal to go down, but I don't trust these dudes. Never dealt with them before. I don't trust bikers in the first place. So I need a crew. I need to show that I got my own crew, right? So they don't walk in here thinking they're going to pull some funny shit. Right. I would be very specific though. I would say, listen, I'm not asking you to do nothing. Just post security. You know, I'll pay you 500 bucks. I'm just asking you to post security. And inevitably, almost every time they'd be like, man, that's what we do. What time? Right. So, so now I would arrange with, with my guys who might be from wherever the hell they're coming from, come in, we would arrange a whole deal, whether it would be, like I said, maybe 20 machine guns out of our vault or five kilos we borrowed from DEA or whatever, whatever the prop was, I would arrange for that transaction to happen. I would tell, I would tell my security team, right? The gangbangers, Hey, listen, you got to be here uh, Friday at 12 noon. You know, that these fuckers are supposed to show up. So I need to hear, I need to hear at 12 noon sharp, you know, gangbanger time. It never, it's not our time, right? They might show up at three o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, you know, we would do a dry run with, uh, you know, between us, between the undercovers and set everything up. We'd have the props. So the bad guys would show up. All right. So we'd let them fist fuck the, what, the dope or the guns or whatever. Right. And we would use real dope and, and it would get us nine twenty. and it was kind of dirty pool, a little bit cheating, but these were bad guys. So let's say it was three kilos, right? So the bad guys would show up and I would give them their instructions. And I never would tell them to show up with guns. I would just tell them, come for security. 
every time they would show up and they'd pull their shirts up and say, we're ready, right? And they'd show me their guns. And there's your 924C charge, right? Bingo. Because we're using real dope. So we'd even let them fist fuck the keys, right? And they'd be like, oh, okay, all right, man. And I'd say, listen, you stand by the door. You stand in that corner. You stand behind the counter with me. You stand in that corner. Don't do shit unless I say to do shit. Don't say shit unless I say to say shit. I say, you don't have to do anything. This is the easiest money you'll ever make. Because these guys would start getting hyped up, right? And the last thing I wanted was for them to do something stupid, right? So, you know, and it would be, we say theater because it was theater, man, right? So my undercover phone would ring. I'd be like, yeah, yeah. All right, man, you're late. All right, I'm waiting on you. Come on. Right? And then I and I tell the guys, I'd say, all right, that was them, man. They'll be here. I don't know how many. Right? And then like a panel van would pull into the parking lot. These guys be looking out the window, right? And like four bad motherfuckers would come out. Right? And fucking like maybe, you know, they do the whole they knew what they like they'd look around, maybe drive around a few times, look around, and then like two would come in and kind of make a quick introduction, check it out. Then they'd call and then Mr. Big would come in. All right. Or what it was always different, but something to that effect. Right. And so, you know, we'd have our back and forth, uh, you know, where's the money. Right. You know, where's the, you know, where's the shit, where's the money, all that. And, uh, we would do the deal in front of these guys. Right. So then they, they'd make a call and then another guy would come out from the van with a, you know, with a bag full of the money or whatever. Right. And, uh, we would do the deal in front of them. And then I would always, so I would tell one of my guys, one of my undercovers, I'd say, hey man, take that money in the back and count it. And as long as it, I say, tell me it's good. As long as it's good, I go, go take it to the spot. Because I never wanted my own crew that we hired to know that that money was there. Because I was always worried they'd come back and rob us right after, right? So yeah, you want to let them know that money's leaving. Absolutely. So we would do the deal. <laughs> we'd do the exchange. They'd take the, the keys. We'd take the money or they'd take the machine guns. We'd take the money. And, uh, you know, after the deal was over, we'd kind of have a debrief with the crew, with, with the crew we hired, you know, and they'd be like, man, that was some serious shit. And all right, this is, this is legit. And, uh, then I would always try to get them to sell me the guns they bought. And um, like nine times out of 10, a couple of them would actually sell me the guns they, that they brought for the deal, which made it even better. And, uh, but inevitably here, here's what it did for us two big things that the street theater did for us. First of all, it showed them that all these guns we were buying and, all, and the drugs we were buying, we're moving out, right? Because who just keeps buying guns and drugs, right? Cops. But we showed them that the shit was moving. It, you know, we were just, we were hustlers like we claimed to be. I was buying all these guns, but they were going, I was selling them for a profit, right? That was, that, so it, it helped show that. And the, the other big thing it did was these guys would inevitably go out into the criminal community, their fellow gang members, and, and they would say, listen, these motherfuckers are legit. You know, they, they are legit. And our business would always pick up after that. So credibility, street credibility is what it gave us. Yeah, and they and they want to brag about what they they were uh, yes. did security for this big deal. Oh yeah, we just saw keys go down, saw machine guns, saw this man. It's like yeah, yeah. And they they make it. And by the time the bad part about it is, by the time they get done telling the story, it's ten times bigger than probably what it was. Hey, by the time they're done, I was fucking Pablo Escobar, Steve. Right? By the time they got done telling. It. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. You know, they they had their hand on their gun the whole time. They were ready to draw down. They would take him out right there. Yeah, this guy looked at me, and I looked at him. I said, don't even try it. You know, they're telling their stories, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, sometimes it would be like the tension would, would be palpable in there because these guys wanted something bad to happen. Like, you know, you could tell they were ready for, t- for some shit to go down, you know, because they were, they were thugs. Well, see, and they're, they're thinking you're, you're a big roller now. Exactly. And they want to prove yep. themselves to you. Well, let's, let's talk about that first. You talked about that first storefront operation. One thing I wanted to bring out, um, like you said, you had 400 guns, multiple kilos of coke. I mean, there was mm-hmm. tens of thousands of ecstasy pills. Stolen vehicles. You had 130 federal and local officers involved, you know, about 100 defendants. But the one thing you didn't have was you Correct. when the arrest went down. Why is that? Because I never liked that part of the job and I never wanted to, uh, I never wanted to be present. You know, that, that some guys live for that, you know, that, that moment, that burn, uh, that Jim Carrey, it was me. Yes. You know? And I, I never did. Uh, I, I avoided takedowns when I could at all costs. Uh, I never felt any need to rub it into anyone's face, uh, you know, because undercover is very personal to me. You can say, hey, man, I'm just doing my job. But but it's not. It's more than that. It's very personal. So it means that I always looked at it this way. My game, and, and I get this from Jay Dobbins, so I'm, I'm but th- this is how I thought of it. I heard him say this first. My game was better than your game, right? Because everyone on the street, the hustle, it's a game, right? And you're trying to beat beat the other guy. You know, my game was better than yours because you're getting locked up right now. So, and it, it, it's a personal thing, you know? And that's why we call this podcast Game of Crimes. It's a game. That's right. That's right. And uh, so I, I didn't want to rub it in. I didn't want, uh, you know, my face to be the last face they saw before they got carted off. Um because most of the time they wouldn't believe it for a while anyway. They'd say, no, it can't right. be. This guy's legit. Right. You got it wrong, you know? Hey, well, let's let's talk about one quick thing here because we're kind of getting towards, you know, um, bringing all this together. But it was uh, Mark, is it Polcan or Polchan, Polchan in Chicago? Yeah. Polchan. What, what I thought was interesting about this operation wasn't the fact, I mean, it's an operation. Two things I thought were interesting out of this. Number one, you sold him gold fillings still in teeth yeah. so i mean of all the things you could sell i mean try, uh you know I'm, I'm sitting there going oh my god but the thing but what i thought was really interesting was the fbi had sent already three ucs in there yes. that had been made you didn't get made so let's talk first why do you think it was you didn't get made and then where the hell did you come up with the ideas to sell teeth with gold fillings all right that was my uh and this was definitely the, the strangest case I've ever worked because it was the first time where my goal was not to buy guns. Um, so my undercover mentor, the great Chris Bayless out of Chicago, uh, I, I had just finished the, uh, I believe, I, one of the storefronts. And I, I was out to dinner with my wife and I was, I hadn't been home and all that. And I was you know, I was, I was in the process of telling her, man, I'm going to take a break, which I had never taken and all that. And, uh, I get a call during that conversation from my mentor, from Chris Bayless. And he says, listen, I want to try. It was his wife's case. His wife was an agent too. I want to working in conjunction with the FBI. Cause this guy Polchan had done a bombing and that's why they were working together. He said, I want to, uh, I want to take a run at this guy. He goes, very low probability of success. He goes almost zero, but I want to do it because you know it's always a little bit of 
stick it to the FBI, right? So uh, he goes... Which is a recurring theme in many of these podcasts. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yes, it he is. goes, listen, yes, he is. goes, you fit the bill, man. And, and Steve, you know this, uh, Morgan, you know this. You know, when a guy has kind of been your mentor, you don't say no, right? So I said, hey, man, I'll, I'll be on the plane. So this was all his concept. Uh, so this guy, Mark Polchin, there was no crime he wasn't into. Home invasions, burglaries, armed robberies. Uh, he was... He was in the biggest crime family in Chicago. Uh, they call it the outfit. They don't call it the mafia in Chicago. And he was also a full patch member of the outlaws. So the papers had made a big deal out of this because it was kind of a merger of, of the mafia and the outlaw motorcycle world. Um, and he was like, he was the conduit. He was the guy cause he was, he was in both. Uh, so he owned a, jewelry store in Cicero. I don't know if you know Chicago, but it's, it's, uh, it's a nasty old place. It was actually, I think where Capone was kind of headquartered back in the day. And, uh, it was called Goldberg Jewelers. And it was a, just a total front. It was his own storefront kind of, uh, I mean, he was a legitimate jeweler and all, but out of the back of that place, and there was three different levels to get into in that place. And out of the back room, Everything was happening. Uh, High-end stolen merchandise. And when I say, I'm talking about containers, right? I'm talking about, you know, the, the big screens kind of had just, were just kind of come out and, and were, were big time. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was back there meeting with the mob, uh, uh, with the gangster disciples, the Latin Kings. You know, he grew up in a street gang and then kind of went into the mafia and the outlaws and all that. So he was just into everything uh and that that his front was goldberg jewelers that's where he ran everything out of so chris's idea was he did have a sign up front you know he had bulletproof glass the whole thing there wasn't really much jeweler business going on there but on his sign out front it says we buy gold so chrisser went to his personal dentist and asked him if he could buy with ATF funds, uh, gold fillings. And the dentist went into a drawer and pulled them out. And he said, yeah, absolutely. And now these are gold fillings he had pulled with, the, you know, the tooth is in it, you know, so there was blood stains, the root, the tooth <laughs> in these gold fillings. Wait a minute. A dentist oh, just happens to keep those around he had in, a drawer? in a drawer. Oh my God. So, so again, this was, this was all his, this was not my idea. I'm not, I'm not even close to being this creative. So Chris bought a whole bag full, bunch of them, put them in a crown Royal bag, which of course that's where all no gooders, everything, yeah, that's, dope, gold yep. teeth with fillings. Absolutely. Yeah, everything goes into a yep. crown Royal. Put him in that and said, listen, <laughs> you're going to go, you're going to knock on his door and see if he'll come up and you're going to run your game. I mean, there was no, there was no plan because there was just see if you can run, run some game on this guy. And, and my backstory now, he was a big MMA fan, right? Big, he trained a little, but he was a big fan of MMA. So, so my backstory was that I was up in Chicago training at a local gym, MMA gym, a jujitsu gym, kind of a down and out little past my prime guy who was like kind of a punching bag, uh, sparring, but which, which is real. Cause a lot of guys do that travel around doing that and you, you make some money. 
Uh, so I actually backstopped everything myself uh, through uh, a guy who I really trained with in L.A. Uh, through Gracie Gyms and set me up in Chicago. And I actually I had to go there and train and all that. So, and again, you know, I had my own, my government backstopping, but we did a lot of stuff on our own. Uh, so I go out there and, uh, and I told my wife, I said, listen, I, I have to do this for Chris. He sang at our wedding. He sang wild thing at our wedding. So, I mean, there's <laughs> no way I, I would ever say no. I said, but listen, he already told me there's zero chance of success on this. It'll be a one-time gig. I'll be back home. So I fly up there. And, uh, you know, they give me this undercut, a Thunderbird. Remember the Ford Thunderbirds? I get a Thunderbird. I sh and uh, oh, and yeah. uh, so they wire me up and all that shit. And I drive there. Now, I couldn't use a transmitter because he had all this. He was a very technical. Uh, he was into technology. He had all these. They knew already. You couldn't even. Uh, they couldn't even do surveillance anywhere close. So no transmitter. And they couldn't do surveillance because. The two of the guys the FBI sent in were dirty cops who who they had flipped, you know, and but he sniffed them out. Uh, and what, what would happen is the other cops would give this guy a heads up when they saw surveillance. And they always knew the feds because there's that easy pass thing in Chicago. Uh, you guys know the easy pass, right? What oh, if, yeah. We have it out here. All right, yeah. Whatever their version of it yeah. is there. Well, yeah. Cicero is such a... Uh, uh, enclosed area and stuff none of the locals have that they never even leave cicero so they always knew when when they would see a car with one of those the cops always knew it was the feds it was the feds yep and and they busted by an easy pass uh, i was in there when, when he got tipped off a few times when they burned the surveillance and these are the cops calling them wow. so so I roll up in my Thunderbird and I see right next to his place was a check, ca uh, like a Mexican check cashing place. And, uh, which by the way, at one point he actually, uh, somehow he got his crew to tunnel underground and rot and burglarize them once. Just side, like I said, there was nothing this guy. <laughs> because it was there. <laughs> was yeah. And he was not a convicted felon. I mean, he was super smart. He, he had no felonies on him, man. Uh, so, so anyway, I go to the, ch I, I just kind of improvised. I see the check cash in place. So I go there and I get like a money order or something, you know, in my undercover, just, just to have a reason to have been there. Right. And so I get my money order, put it in my undercover wallet and all that, uh, which said bad motherfucker on it. I had a bad motherfucker. Remember those wallets, uh, <laughs> from Pulp Fiction, but they had just come out. So, so I, I get my money order, right? And then I, I make like, I'm looking, I see the sign. So I go to my car, I pull out the crown bag and uh, I walk up there and you got a buzz. So I hit the buzzer and he buzzes me in. And th this is the first, the first section. All the whole glass thing, he's got a, he's got a tiny little carousel, right? That's open. That, that's it. Obviously he, you know, cause he's not. He's in the game, right? So, you know, he, so, uh, I go up there and I say, Hey man, uh, I said, I seen the sign. I said, I was getting a money order. I seen the sign says you buy gold. He goes, yeah. And so I, I take the crown bag. I put it up there and I spill all the bloody fucking teeth out there. He's <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> so 
he's like, are you fucking kidding me? I said, no, man. I said, and I, I, so I, I started in the game. I said, Hey man, I said, I got it from a, a guy at my gym. I said, he didn't want to fucking, he didn't want to bring him nowhere. He said, I could keep half if I can get some money for him. And, and so then he's looking at my forearms, right? I'm wearing a, a sweatshirt that comes to here and I have just a little bit of red on one of my tattoos. And he's like, let me see that tattoo. Pull your sleeve up. So I pull it up. So I guess later we figured out he was worried when he saw that color red because that's a color of his rival bike gang, right? You know, oh, the okay. Hell's Angels. Um, oh, yeah. So, ah. you know, I, not to tell you the whole thing. So he's like, all right. He goes, take the teeth out. So I'm like, what the, how the fuck do you get? I mean, these are teeth that are in a crown. I said, you got anything I could, that'll help me get them out? So he gives me pliers and a hammer. So it's a countertop. So I like I start and he's like, hey, don't fuck my countertop up. So now I put him on the floor. I'm on my hands and knees hitting him with a hammer and like to bend the metal a little bit so I can pull the teeth out. And this is goes on for like 10 fucking minutes because I can't get these teeth out. And finally, he's like, just give me the fucking teeth. So I, I had like maybe, I don't know, a third of them out. He takes them. Obviously, he had done shit like this before. He he got him out pretty easily. And uh, so he, like, fucking throws the bloody teeth back at me. And, uh, you know, he weighs the gold and, and gave me some shitty price for it, which I didn't really care. And uh, and so, and, you know, that had been basically, and I said, listen, I know this guy's got more. I said, if I, if I come back with some more, he's like, and then it kind of opened up a little bit. And he's like, what gym? You, he goes, what gym are you training at? I tell him the gym. So that's just kind of how it started. And I did go back uh, with more teeth. And uh, he actually did have me checked out at that gym uh, by a guy. Now, so the interesting part of this whole thing is that the FBI had done a black bag operation and gotten a warrant and had a camera in the exit sign in his back room. Uh, so they could see everything he was doing back then when he was meeting with the mobsters and all this shit. So like I said, there was three levels to get in. So as I kept going back there, uh, and the way I got into the second level was, I think it was the third time I came back. And now, so Chrisser is there with all the FBI guys, and there was, a, there was some IRS agents too. So what I did when I came back was I brought him this sweatshirt, this gym had this sweatshirt, this MMA gym, and it, it was this huge, big, bulky sweatshirt, which I knew there was no way would ever fit through that little carousel. So I figured if I'm going to give it to him, he's got to open that fucking door. So when I came back with teeth and I brought the sweatshirt, I said, hey, man, I, I brought you something. So it, it wasn't fitting through that thing. And he did. He opened the door and let me in the second level. And Christopher said he was in the, in the monitor room back at the FBI office with all those guys when I got into the second level, which none of those, the three guys had. And Christopher said, I was like, that's my fucking guy. That's my guy right there. But <laughs> he just did it. He just did what you couldn't do. Right. So, so anyway, eventually, you know, in this, this case took a long time uh, of just going back and I eventually uh, gained his trust and there was ups and downs and all that. But uh, my, you know, my ultimate goal uh, in this was to buy uh, this electronic equipment from him so that they could trace the shipments so they could prove these shipments had been had been hijacked and stolen and were interstate as well too right correct
I never knew this because obviously, you know, the whole interstate transportation stolen merchandise is FBI thing. I never knew how hard it was to chase down a lot number. Like if you, if you take your, your big screen TV, you know, they all have, have serial numbers and lot numbers, but I guess, uh, they like Best Buy or whatever. It's not like tracing a gun. It's very difficult, like, to figure out. I guess there's just so much money involved and shit, you know, to actually figure out. But they eventually did. Yeah, and these this stuff was being stolen on the level where, you know, it was where, you know, the the 18-wheeler the driver would park it somewhere and kind of walk away. And the mobster would get in and drive it off, you know. Uh, just like you saw in Goodfellas. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Uh, but it, it was a crazy case where... Uh, I had to put in a lot of time, uh, and again, I w- there was no, I wasn't buying guns or anything. And uh, you know, he ran a nightclub, the Entourage, downtown Chicago, where I, I had to spend a lot of time uh, drinking with this guy. And and uh, you know, there was there was one point where he took me out uh, to like a, a kind of a strip joint kind of place. Oh, here we go again. You didn't pay somebody to hit him. No, 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 no. I, I learned my lesson by this point. But, but you know, in, in spending so much time with this guy, I, I mean, there was a lot. I agreed with him on a lot of things politically. And then, uh, you know, obviously there was a, a big part of him that, you know, was reprehensible to me, but there was also a part of him. He was a good dad and all that. And, uh, it was a point where we were out and I didn't even realize it was his birthday and we're sitting there and he says to me, you know, we're, we're pounding shots and all. And he goes, he goes, man, he goes, I can't trust anyone in my life. He goes, I can't even trust the people around me. And, uh, then he tells me it's his birthday. And, And I remember thinking like it was his 40th birthday and he's confiding in me telling me how he can't trust anyone in his life. And I'm thinking, man, you picked the wrong person to confide into, man. Uh, <laughs> this reminds me of Airplane. I picked the wrong day to quit sniffing glue. Yeah, right, And right. I picked the wrong day. But, but you, and you start do getting that sense of betrayal somewhat. As reprehensible as he was, there was still parts about him that he... Look, it's it's human emotion, right? And this was your first time. Was this the first deployment of Sal Nunziato as a uh, UC persona? Or had you used that before? No, I, I had been using that before. Yeah. Yeah. So he had kind of, so this, this, so, and the thing you mentioned about this too, because what I want to do now is move into kind of the higher level of some of your other storefront operations. But the thing about this, it, which I think cemented your reason for why you wanted to do storefronts, you did all of this work just to get one guy. It was like, man, that was a lot of effort for one guy. Yep. And and I could spend the same amount of time and wrap up. And get a hundred. And a hundred guys who are really affecting the streets, uh, you know, shoot trigger pullers. So yeah, it did really cement, uh, my, my, uh, my feelings about these storefront operations and, and how, how effective they were. Well, let's talk about some of these because, um, I mean, you had one like Operation Thunderbolt, Operation Pulaski, but I think the one that. Uh, you did in Statesboro, Georgia, small little college city. This is one that kind of affected you personally because it affected, again, it's another guy who said, I trust you. You're the only, in fact, he said, you're the only white guys, you know, I really like kind of. And this was a kid named Petey, right? So just, you know, kind of at a high level, tell us about that that operation. How did you get to Petey and how did, how did that affect you knowing that at, at some point in time, this dude's going to jail? So we, we had opened up a... Uh 
again, we, we made it a little bit bigger and better than the, the previous one. Uh, this was our second one. And uh, uh, it was a head shop. Uh, in a, it was actually located in a uh, kind of a strip mall where there was a big gold gym and some things. So it, it was kind of a tough location um, because so much public interaction. Uh, so, but, you know, they were having a big problem there with all the, all the gangsters and drug dealers coming in from, from Atlanta, uh, you know, and Columbia and Savannah and Jacksonville. And, uh, we, we got up and running. We were in the kind of the initial stages and a girl who had been, uh, selling us, selling us some dope. She said, Hey, I, I want to bring, uh, I want to bring my boyfriend in and, uh, you know, he's got, I think he's, I can't remember, I think he's got, he's got some hard. And we're like, all right, bring him to us, you know, talking about crack. And so this guy came in and he was, he was, he was a nice, he was pleasant, you know, cause a lot of the guys were not pleasant. He was pleasant, easy going. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we ID'd him and he was a multiple convicted felon. Uh, and he sold us, I think, uh, maybe three or four ounces of, of crack and uh so i mean he's already cooked right you know at that point and uh the girlfriend comes back to us and he says hey and she said uh do you think you could give him a job here because as a condition of his parole he has to be employed and i was like well let me get back to you on that and so we talked it we were talking it around because the storefront had kind of started a little bit slow and we were like, man, what an opportunity because this guy is respected, right? He, you know, he's been in prison plenty and everyone knows who he is and he's from the area. And, uh, man, he could really boost us and give us instant credibility. But on the other hand, this is a, you know, our, our cover room was next door. It, it had been an eyeglass place that I rented and there was a, like a tax place next door. We rented both and that's where the cover team was secreted and it connected in the back. I mean, doors locked, but there was a connection. We we're like, man, that's, and all we had, like on the wall in between where the counter was, we had set up like a, a, a press board, you know, that you could pin, but it was actually on hinges so it could pop up. So the guys with long guns in the event of a robbery or something could, could pop through. Um, so to have someone working there right there logistically would have been, we were like, can we maintain our, you know, our, our status on, it, right you know, right with, door, a, yeah. with a real unwitting bad guy here and uh we you know we talked around and my boss was like if you think if you think you know it, it'll be it'll help do it so we made the decision to do it and uh his name was Petey, and he ended up working there for uh seven or eight months and i mean every day and I, you know, I can honestly say this and, and I don't, I don't feel bad about it at all. He was, he was a good guy. He was a good guy. I mean, you know, he grew up in the environment he grew up in and did what he did to survive. And I, and I make zero excuses for criminal behavior, but deep down he was a good guy. And I, and I say this, uh, in the book, there's no doubt in my mind, he would have jumped in front of a bullet for me and my partners. Uh, well, he almost did, right? He, he almost did on two occasions, time? on two occasions, two, two robberies. He, he thwarted two robberies. 
Wow. Yep. And and so when this finally goes to court, you actually go take the extra step, go to bat for him and try to get him leniency. So for the first time in my career, I actually went up uh, on the stand in a sentencing and asked the judge to downward depart. Uh, and I laid out the whole story and the whole reason. And this was an old South Georgia who actually happened to be from that town, from Statesboro, Georgia. Uh, old Georgia guy who had highways named after him. And uh, he wasn't hearing a word I said. Did not care. And uh, I mean, it, you know, so we kind of had a sinking feeling as the undercovers kind of toward the end. Cause again, you brought it up, Morgan. At one point we were all playing pool during some downtime. And, uh, and Petey said to us, he goes, man, I just want to tell you guys something, man. I appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, he goes, you guys are the first white people in my life I've ever trusted. He said, and I appreciate the opportunity. And, and then, and this was something like as a guy from New York and, 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 and my partners and the guys in the cover room who had grown to like him. He, and after that statement, he goes, man, you can even call me the N word if you want. And he said, the, you know, he said the word and like, uh, to me, that was one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard, uh, in my life. And, uh, he, even like, uh, Bootsy was in the cover room, uh, Steve and Bo even Bootsy was like, man, my heart sunk when I heard that because, you know, another interesting thing was we had cameras there was cameras right over to, he worked the cash register and we had cameras over the register. He never stole a dime ever. I mean, tons of opportunities for him to slip a few bucks in his pocket and all that. Never stole a dime. And so we, we all had a, a, a terrible feeling toward the end because we knew, uh, and you know, we, well, he's going to get jammed up. There's, I mean, there's no way out of this for him. We had asked the U S attorney's office, all of us, you know, is there any way to not charge him? And they were like, man, if, uh, they were like, no, nah, the optics are no good here because of his criminal history. And, uh, well, and he started off selling. I, I think, he, I think he, and a gun and a gun. So, uh, so that, you know, when I went up there and gave my spiel and asked the judge, the judge pretty much said, listen, he wasn't helping you boys. Cause, cause you're law enforcement. He was helping you boys. Cause he thought you were gangsters just like he is. And then he got, you know, 20 years. Uh, and that was tough, man. You know, the first thing he did after the takedown, uh, you know, they, they put every marshals, put everyone in the, uh, county jail. And, uh, so, you know, everyone's thinking he's a snitch. Of course, he's been there all the time. And, uh, you know, he strung up his bed sheets and tried to hang himself. Yeah. And luckily they got to him. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, it was, it was hard. It's hard on all of us, man. We had really grown to like him. Well, speaking of being hard on you, one of the hardest things, and let's 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 kind of start bringing this uh, to a close because I want to talk about Operation Pulaski because that was kind of the beginning of the end mm -hmm. for Sal yep. uh, for um, uh, Sal uh, Nunziato and for you some of the issues you started having and too. So let's kind of bring this in. So, but I thought what was unique is people forget the name of the the name now is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Right. So the word tobacco is in there. And I remember a case, you and I were talking about somebody we knew in common, Scott Sweetow. Yep. And I remember one of the cases they made on terrorists. Terrorists were taking 
cigarettes, selling them with fake tax stamps to make that extra money and then sending the hard currency back. That, so that was Hamas, is, was that? It was Hamas. Yeah, Hamas. Yeah. That's right. That was the Hamas uh, operation. So uh, not, not, not saying that I'm not connected or not, but, you know, I did used to carry a diplomatic passport and go to countries like Pakistan. So, oh, man. You know, but my name does not end in a vowel, so I'm not that's that right. kind of connected. But, <laughs> but anyway, but, but talk about Pulaski real quick. I mean, this was a tobacco operation, and this was a time when you were almost exposed yes. as a UC. Yeah, we, uh, you know, like I said, every time we stepped our game up. So after the head shop we did, we, we did a, uh, a military surplus store uh, with an attached gun range, with a gun range attached, which... ATF headquarters did not like um, having live ammo and guns flying. Yeah, all over the originally place. we wanted to do just like kind of a thug gun range, but they shot that down. And uh, even no though pun intended, yeah, right. <laughs> even though you know I had done a lot of homework and, and showed them that actually gun range is probably one of the safest environments you can be in. Uh, you know, look at the amount of shootings that happen. There's more shootings in a Walmart than at a gun range. Um, but anyway, we, we finally, after back and forth, they allowed us to have a military surplus store that had a gun range in the back uh but their caveat was that only only identified targets could were allowed to go use the gun range uh so we, at first we we're like man that's not going to flow very well but we made it work but again it was it was definitely a step up uh so from there when we went to our next one we already had a warehouse we had rented uh that in an undercover capacity just to hold our swag for the store, right? Our supplies and all that. And so we thought, why don't we do like a warehouse operation? Because ATF really, because now there had been some issues with some storefronts and they really wanted us to wall off the general public from these operations, which is a tough thing to do. So we thought, let's, let's do sort of a warehouse operation and why not use tobacco? Seeing as how, there is a very small part of ATF that kind of is in that business, and we had access to the product. So that's how we started. But then we morphed it. We, we moved, we, we did a, a very quiet takedown from that portion, and we morphed it and moved it to the port where we had a huge place. We actually hired uh, a Colombian lady, uh, a young Colombian lady to, to be the kind of the front of the house. So we were freight forwarders. We had a, uh, a business where we shipped to Colombia and we maintained the, uh, the whole tobacco distribution aspect. I mean, this place was huge. We had forklifts. I mean, it was impressive. Uh, and because of our setting uh, and always with the help of informants, you know, we had, we had a, a great informant. We started bringing in heavy hitters, which on the port, we had more access to the heavy hitters. We're still hitting the street guys and the street gangs who were coming in with the, you know, selling us a stolen gun and all that. But, but we started getting into international smugglers, uh, international stolen car rings, gun smugglers and all that. And it, it really was, it was a phenomenal operation, but as you said, it's where it all kind of started falling apart. 
So, because we talked about in the pre-call, we talked about Wally and Roberto, you know, and this is a more new kind of upscale class than you guys were dealing before, but this is some new challenges. What was the thing that kind of said, kind of like Hollywood, I remember that famous Happy Day show, and this is where the term jump the shark came from. It's when Fonzie jumped the shark, you know. When did the storefront operation kind of jump the shark? This kind of sounds like this. What was what was the event or what happened that said this is kind of we're on the downhill side of this now. This is the beginning of the end. Well, uh, you know, it kind of happened, I guess, internally. Uh, you you guys know how it is when you're working with a bunch of cops and, and we were kind of. Uh, we started going in different directions. Uh, my part, my main partner, Ralph and I uh, always were street guys. And, you know, my I was always about buying guns. You know, the whole dope thing was everyone was doing that. Uh you know, the DEA guys were killing that and everyone else. And, and, you know, my, these operations were to reduce violent crime and buy guns. Uh, but then we started, as we started getting to these different people and money laundering and the stolen cars, some of the other agents wanted to take these different directions. And I'll tell you what, ATF's not set up for it. You know, DEA and FBI are ATF's not, it's a small agency. And I knew we weren't, um, you know, once we started getting into the money laundering thing, we just, we don't have, we don't have the people or the resources. Um, so there started to be a little bit of internal conflict, uh, you know, as to direction and all that. Uh, we had some task force officers, uh, started to be personality conflicts and trouble there. And, and now we're dealing with all this electronic equipment, right? Like I said, this place was like a Sam's club and, uh, so once, the, you know, there was, at the end of the operation, uh, there was accusations that a task force guy had been stealing uh, televisions. Uh, the, the chief of police had been arrested, um, who they were, these guys were working under on, on something unrelated. But that was the beginning of the unraveling. Uh, I had already, le- I was up in cleveland uh working on a, on a gideon uh undercover operation when it started unraveling and uh the operation had huge success uh the results were incredible but it all came apart when everything uh kind of was unveiled and when the oig came in now all these there had been five storefronts that oig had already been looking into which is Office of the Inspector General. That's kind of the separate uh, entity of ATF that every agency has that looks into operations, wrongdoings. They're an external right. type of organization, it's, right? It's the OIG for the Justice Department. So all agencies under the Justice Department. It's kind of internal affairs for the Justice Department. Um, so And you never yeah. want those guys mucking around in your business. No offense, right? You really don't. Because I can tell you from firsthand experience... Those guys go real deep. Uh, they went back almost a decade into my undercover career trying to find something. Uh, and, you know, undercover is a gray war. It's a very gray area. Uh, so that, that can really play with your mind. But I can tell you, if I had ever done anything wrong, they would have found it. Um, because, you know, I was getting calls from people, uh, you know, guys from seven, eight years ago who said, I just got interviewed uh, about some case. You know, where did we put the camera? You know, based on, they were basing it on testimony I had given and trying to find an inconsistency in testimony. I mean, they really dug. 
So let's kind of close out with this part of it because there's some personal issues that arose out of this. And then we want to finish on a high note, but some of the personal issues were, number one, you were, you were gone a lot from the family. I mean, you see work took a toll. And one of the things you talked about, which I thought was so interesting, at what point did Lou Velozzi become more Sal Nunziato as opposed to Sal was just a part of Lou? You know, that, that probably happened, uh, uh, in the early two thousands. Um, when I I just, I couldn't stop, uh, again, it became an obsession, professionally a healthy obsession, because great results, personally uh, unhealthy. And I, I think, you know, it's somewhere in there. I lost, I lost my moral compass. Um, and my my marriage, it's the adrenaline, isn't it? Absolutely, I mean, kind of like you're absolutely the adrenaline. So you know, my marriage was suffering. Uh, I definitely was was not up for the father of the year or the husband of the year award for for. A long time uh for a decade and uh you know i'd missed so much of my kids you know their first years and all that uh because you know i was out there saving the world according to me and uh so it did it led to it had led to infidelity um you know i i'll say this when so that was really the major issue, uh, and and the U.S. Attorney's Office had it in at that point uh, for her. Just give everybody a bit of context on this, because this was a, a relationship with an assistant U.S. attorney Correct. that came to light that affected. They thought it would be a much bigger impact professionally in terms right. of your cases than it actually was, but it still was something that they dragged you guys through uh, a, a lot of— uh, um, trials and tribulations over it. right through the mud so so when they when they really had nothing because you know even the atf internal affairs told me they said listen we we looked at this you didn't do anything wrong they said except you know we're not the morality police if we and steve knows this they they said basically you know if we if we came down on every agent who had an extramarital affair we wouldn't have an agency uh but you know but unfortunately once oig steps in the agency has right. is out. Like you know, they have nothing to do. It's with a pit bull with a bone, man. They don't absolutely, let go of that. Absolutely. So a three year investigation, almost three years, uh, and and what are they? And, and it was it was all the U.S. Attorney's Office spearheading it, and directing OIG. And as you guys know, when they don't have anything, they always try to fall back on false statements. That's their catch all when they really don't have anything. So they found an application for an S visa for my informant who this guy had done some incredible stuff. I had put him in for an S visa. He was a foreign national. And, uh, they said, well, there's a couple things on here that are, that are false. So I looked at it. I'm like, one thing these guys didn't know, uh, I was an immigration agent. I know how to fill out a, a, visa application right for for a non-immigrant and so i knew but what happened was they started looking into everything as they do they go way you know way out of the scope i mean they were just looking into everything in my in my career for about it for years and years like calling our tech guys <clears throat> based on and they took all my testimony from all court proceedings to try and find some inconsistencies uh you know I'm going to use the term witch hunt. And, uh, you know, so 
at this point in time, it's been in the newspapers. It's on the internet. Obviously, my undercover career is over. My, uh, I'm worried about my freedom. I'm worried about my family, my pension. All of these things. I have. There's nowhere to turn, right? I, obviously, my wife doesn't want to hear this shit, right? Um, and cops keep everything bottled up. Nobody's very good about talking about stuff. Absolutely. I, I'll tell you what. My undercover brothers stood by me. Uh, they they almost rotated flying in to be with me. Uh, ATF totally took care of me, man. They they gave me a soft place to land in uh, Huntsville, Alabama at uh, the National Center for Explosives Training and Research uh, where I finished my career. Uh, you know, uh, the OIG investigation came up with absolutely nothing, uh, but that, that never makes the right, papers, right? right? <laughs> um, well, and let me be very clear about that because this was an allegation that involved over 200 separate cases right? and investigations, you and the age. And so I, just so that people are listening, let me here's the, here's the ultimate impact that it came down to. Um, only three criminal cases were affected. One man was granted a 15-month reduction of his sentence. Right. One man sentenced to 21 years was granted a new trial and sentenced to time already served after he pleaded guilty to reduce charges. And a third person was sentenced to 13 years in prison, was granted a new trial. He entered a guilty plea and was resentenced to 57 months in prison. Here's the here's the upside, if there's an upside to this, right? Because you paid a huge personal price. And I want to talk about the, the drinking and the other stuff. But at the end of the day, out of all of these cases, only three people had anything really affect that. In other words, the police work was solid. The cases were solid. The evidence was solid. And you made solid, you made good cases. And people, the bad guys and girls still went to jail over this. Correct. And that was over 300 federal defendants. Uh, and, and we're talking about some big sentences. Yeah. Um, and we've all been in court cases to where they throw things out for the stupidest thing. Well, you forgot to dot your eye on this form. So we got to throw it out. I mean, the fact that these guys did not walk and did not have convictions reversed speaks to the, uh, totality of the case that you guys put together. Yes. And, but you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't boohoo about it. I don't, it is what it is. I, I made, I made a huge mistake. Um, there was a what was the lowest point what, what tell us about the lowest point you hit i mean you talked about the drinking the paranoia the depression let me ask you just a direct question because you've been a very open guy do you ever think about suicide absolutely uh how close how close uh in my bedroom with my gun my glock in my mouth oh jeez so just if you can picture this um i lived i lived my whole career uh with atf and my life uh invisible i I really didn't know a lot of people in Savannah. Um, you know, I traveled around the country doing things. I wasn't exactly, you know, making friends or anything. Uh, you know, my, my, my friends in my life, beside the guys I grew up with, who I'd lost touch with too, were just my undercover brothers. So I had been invisible. All of a sudden, I'm up in Cleveland working on another case. And, you know, I get this phone call about, you know, this trouble now I know eventually the affair is going to come out. They don't know yet, right? And all this. So, so my I start going into a mind spin because you guys know as, as type A personalities, as cops, we're always in control of everything, right? You know, we're in control. We run things. We run our cases. I had no control over anything. 
at this point. I, I had nowhere to turn, right? Obviously, the couldn't turn to the family who I, I had neglected. I couldn't, uh, th there was nowhere to turn to. Um, so I'm up in my room. I know the OIG has their case. I've met with Larry Berger from FLEOA, the great attorney, uh, who has told me there's nothing to do right now but wait. So th that's the worst thing you want to hear. Uh, I'm in my room looking out the window thinking every car that drives by is they're doing surveillance. Uh, everything's crumbling. I know it's only going to get worse in the papers. I have uh, a very small amount of time till I can retire. Uh, so I'm worried, wow, I'm going to, I'm thinking I'm going to lose my job, possibly be charged, you know, with this federal crime of false statements. The, the biggest thing on me was the embarrassment to my son to ever have to see this, to ever have to Google and see this stuff. Uh, that was definitely number one, you know, you know, my marriage, uh, you know, the shame on my wife, my family name, all that. And, and to me, I'm like, there's no way out. There is no way out. So I sat up in my room, uh, looking out the window for surveillance. And there was a point where I loaded my gun and I sat there and I, I just tried to come up with a reason, you know, not to do it. So my wife and I go to a psychiatrist that day and... Did she find you or did, how did she come to find out that you were up in the room with the gun? Uh, it kind of came out with the psychiatrist and my wife turned to me, looked me in the eyes and said, if you kill yourself, I will make sure that your son knows what a piece of shit you were. And that was the last thought I had ever, you know, uh, no matter how bad things were going to get, you know, of, of doing something stupid like that. Uh, you know, and my wife, man, she, she went through hell, you know, think about it. Savannah's a small city and that shit was in, for weeks. It was headlines. Uh, and, and the embarrassment she, you know, had to go through, uh, again, most people didn't even know what I did, uh, who I was or what I did. And, and you know, I'm, I'm at the supermarket, I'm out at Publix and I, I'm thinking everybody's staring at me. Uh, and, and all I could think of was what was going to happen to me. Right. And, and the shame I was bringing on my family. And, and it's a hard thing to get out of. And, and I was I was redlining. I was red. You know how you redline during a, an operation. Right. Or a takedown or, or an undercover deal. I was redlining 24 seven. For a couple of years. And, and so I, I turned it a bottle. I turned to vodka, man. And I was drinking a when I was in Alabama, I was drinking a bottle of Tito's a day. And. Uh, you know, I, so finally, you know, I, I went back and I, I went to see my priest and through counseling and, and also through ATF, man, they, they took care of me. And I, I, uh, you know, I waited to retire until I was exonerated. Uh, you know, I did my interview with OIG and, you know, the OIG kind of knew again, very thorough investigators. They, they knew it was a witch hunt. And, uh, you know, I could tell in the interview that they knew and, uh, then ATF, man, they, you know, so I, I was done. Obviously I was never going to work undercover again. Um, my family wasn't leaving Savannah. So, you know, I, I opted to retire. I had 26 years in and, uh, ATF, 
threw me two huge retirement parties and and great letters and all that and sent me out right. So it it took me a while to get back on my feet uh, mentally because uh, I, I had never experienced uh, you know all the undercover deals and living with bad guys and all that. Uh, you weren't used to failure. Exactly. I mean, you, you were used to winning all the time. Yes, and this was total failure. And, and to your point, beyond your, it was nothing. You everything was outside of your control, and that's like you and me or Steve would drive us nuts. I can't control it, you know. And it was reputation on top of that because, you know, I didn't even have a letter in my file. I had never been disciplined in a quarter of a century because I was by the book, man. And I had ne- never even an allegation of excessive force or any wrongdoing at all. And and in one fell swoop. Uh, it all came crashing yeah, down. I, yeah, I I messed up my reputation in one fell swoop, and uh, it took a long time to come out of that. Uh, it took a long time, um, and, and to repair the the damage I had done to my family uh, and all that, you know. And again, uh, my guys stuck by me, man. My undercover guys, and and uh, and and literally saved my life. Uh, but but well, it, let's close on a high. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Finish up. You know, it all ended positive, you know, through God, uh, through my faith in God and, uh, you know, and through knowing deep down that I, I had been a guy who had done the right thing, you know, my whole life and for the right reasons, my whole life. You know, Lou, Lou we've, we've, uh, had this conversation with other law enforcement professionals about priorities, you know, and you and I know Morgan knows our priorities should be God, family, and the job, but the reality is it's in the exact reverse you know, and, you know, thank God that, that, you know, you had, whether it was you that got you to the psychiatrist or your wife or your organization, you know, thank the good Lord that happened, uh, that you had the presence of mind to realize what was going on and to snap out of it. Because as we say, law enforcement is not a job. It's a lifestyle. If you're doing your job, it's all consuming. And in your case, it went to the, I mean, the farthest extreme. I've worked undercover, nothing, nothing like you've done. I mean, not even a comparison. I shouldn't even say that I ever worked compared to what you've done in your career. So, uh, you know, we're, we're first of all, proud that you're our friend and, and to have you here on the, the interviews with us, uh, but extremely thankful that your life has turned out the way it should, that you've been recognized for the heroic acts that you've done. And most of all, that your family has hung in there with you ladies and gentlemen, because this is, uh, you know, this family's back together now. Uh, I'm not sure my wife would be as forgiving as yours was, <laughs> but, but I mean, very happy to tell you, brother, is. it was, uh, it was some dark days, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. The, and let's, we want to close off on a high note, but the last note on this too, and we all been in the circle, I've lost more friends in law enforcement through suicide than I have people who have died in the line of duty. And so it's a huge issue that went untalked about and nobody talked about it for a long time. And the fact that you're willing to talk about it, you know, and say the things that this is one of the big things is that you can be big and tough, but at the end of the day, if you keep it bottled up, it's got to come out somewhere. And unfortunately, too many times it comes out the end of a gun as opposed to a conversation or talking to somebody, right? So let's close out on a high note. Let's leave that stuff and let's close. First of all, you got a great podcast. It's called Into Watch, you and Bootsy. Tell us who Bootsy is and why you called it the name End of Watch. Bootsy was, uh, He's a great friend. He was a great homicide detective, uh, also a combat vet. Um, he was in Iraq, and uh, he kind of had a bad end to his his career uh, with a DUI. And uh, 
we decided, you know, we kind of got together, uh, you know, both helping each other out through our tough times. And, uh, you know, it's funny. We talk about the lunch club, right? Which you guys are both familiar with uh, all the lunch, lunch club cops. And, and Bootsy once said something to me uh, when I was when I was down there in the dark days. He said, you know what? He goes, the lunch club guys and girls, they never go through this. They go through their careers. He goes, they, they don't get jammed up, right? They, they don't face any of these kinds of situations. They just go, th- they, they skid through their careers and then they get out and tell stories about shit they never did. He said, but they, got, they can't look in the mirror. He said, you can always look in the mirror. You know, and that you reminds know. me of that great Teddy Roosevelt thing about the man in the arena, right? Yes. You want to be that man in the yep. arena. Yep. So, so we're on the same wavelength, you know, and, and so we decided to do this law enforcement podcast, just for law enforcement and for military. And uh, I tell you, we, we, we had such, we've taken a hiatus here. Uh, Bootsy actually wrote some children's books. Uh, rescue radar, which he's doing now. So we've we're on a hiatus, but we had such a blast talking to to heroes like Steve Murphy, uh, Sheriff Sheriff Clark, Jay Dobbins, uh, uh, Eddie Gallagher, the Navy SEAL. Just just I mean some some super legends, man. Um, and and it's I tell you what, not only have I had a great time, and not only have we gotten some just great feedback, but it's been therapeutic. Totally therapeutic oh, yeah. for me. Well, let's talk about your book proposal too, because hopefully this gets picked up, but it's called Storefront. So why'd you write it? Um, why was it important for you to write this? So when I, uh, when I was in my, uh, uh, in my funk, uh, it was actually Bootsy who came to me and said, man, write a book. And it mo- as more of a uh, mental exercise, he said, write a book about the shit you've done. And I actually started writing it in 2015 and uh, just went through a couple different co-authors and uh, back and forth. And I just couldn't, man, writing's hard. I could not get it right. <laughs> it is. As Steve, as Steve You're knows. talking to a guy from West Virginia, right? And reading is his two different hardest things, man. So I, I finally got a co-author that, that kind of is on the same wavelength and we have it in a format now, which... It's and it's really a story of the evolution of these storefront operations, which they've never. It's never been covered in a TV show, a movie, a book, anything, because nobody knows anything about them. So I, I covered the evolution from uh, the first one through the last. You know, and I talk about all my, all my, uh, you know, my problems and all that uh, at the end. But the story is not really about me or my fellow agents as much as it is about these incredible operations where we could spend hours, I could spend hours just telling you stories of what happened inside these businesses uh, that you wouldn't even believe that, you know, what we witnessed and what we did in there, uh, just insanity and, and how we kind of evolved with each each one in succession and made them bigger and better learning from our mistakes, what we did right, what we did wrong, uh, as they went along. And now your, your book's not out yet. It's not I just, the book is just finished. I mean, literally a week or two ago and, and the proposal, which I, I just got out and sent to you. 
Well, hopefully it'll get picked up because I'm telling you, folks, if you're listening to this by the time this podcast gets out there, um, when I, you know when you read it and stuff, it's like we could go on all day just on this alone. And you see, the, I think one of the things that Steve and I have been looking to do is that it's more of a you talk we listen, but to just to hear the detail and the stories of a lot of the, truly, the unsung heroes. We just interviewed uh, Dave Reichert, the sheriff, but the guy who ran the Green River killer case for 20 years hunting this guy, you know? And so to hear these stories is just incredible. And we want to say thank you for spending your time. Because, I mean, look, we're at like two and a half hours. I mean, two and a four. Man, I'm like, I feel like Italian. Like, I could just keep talking about this all day long. Just you keep know, moving just, your hands. You're doing fine. Just keep moving <laughs> yeah. your hands. You know, you, you ever want to sign it's an Italian, you know, tape their That's hands right. down. So. That's right. Lou, don't don't hey, encourage but. him. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Hey, well, look, well, let's bring this to a close and let's do it by first of all, saluting absolutely. you, sir. Oh, absolutely. thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you did. And I will tell you personally, because I worked a lot of these 924C cases with uh, ATF agents, when we could only get a little bit on somebody, but we needed to get the worst of the worst out of there, it was these guys who came and helped us get gun charges on these bad actors, these people who preyed on society, preyed on the innocent people. And, you know, if there's no matter what all the crap that's gone on in your life, when the full measure is taken, you know, at the end of your time, and we all will approach it at some time, uh, I look at guys like you, and I know that you look back on it and you go, I can point to a place where I made a big difference. We changed people's lives. We saved lives. And we had an impact on society. And that's that's the too much to put on a headstone. But if you could, stuff like that would be the type of stuff that would be on a lot of guys that we talk to. Man, well, just like you guys, uh, you know, good, good, and the bad. I wouldn't change a thing, man. I wouldn't. If I go back in time, I wouldn't do it different. Well, you know what, brother, you are a true American. You're a true patriot. You're a true hero, and we thank the good Lord that you've got a strong wife that's still standing there beside you. So, uh, on Amen top to of that. everything else, you're a true friend. Well, God bless you guys. It's been an honor and a privilege, man, to sit here and talk to you guys. hope you enjoyed that again this is our first two-parter but i think it's really cool steve we dropped the first one on monday the second one on thursday so you get double the fun double the pleasure double the fun <laughs> like spearmint gum whatever that thing was right but lou man the fact that he was so transparent he talked about how he was so close to killing himself you know i mean you just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. man that takes a lot of guts to say that on a podcast that's going to hit you know it is tens and you know of thousands of people and the fact that he's he's opened up about his family is just you don't hear about that in the law enforcement culture. I'll be honest with you, unless you're a very very close friend with somebody like Lou. So the fact that he's coming out and telling the world his story, you know, it's just another example of what law enforcement professionals put themselves into, and how it can negatively uh, affect them in the long run because they're just trying to do the right thing for for the. Uh, for everybody else, for the public. Yeah, he was so dedicated to his job, but he's working these operations all the time, going places constantly on the road, you know, and that wears on you. you know? True, true freaking hero. I just, I mean, I'm proud to call him a friend. Lou, you're, you're a brother in every sense of the word, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I know it's going to have a lot of impact, and uh, we don't put this out there for sympathy, and that's not what Lou's asking you about. You know, we're putting it out there. We just want you to know what really happens behind what the scenes. What the real toll is. 
that Absolutely. it takes on people to do this kind of work. Well, look, Lou, yeah. this is me. You can't see this, but this is me saluting you, sir. So anyway, great episode. And if you thought it was a great episode, which we know you did, then go to Apple Podcasts, hit that five stars. Again, it's Disney. It's, it's you know, uh, the Magic Kingdom. It's five stars. We don't know how it works. We just know that it works. So help us work. Help make things better. You know, uh, Murph needs a retirement home, so we, we've got to just start, you know, getting this thing working. Don't you, Steve? Yes, he do. He needs one right now. <laughs> in in Florida, but hopefully a single level that you own, not a condo, man. That That's yeah. just tragic. Uh, as long as I get out of here before the next winter, I, I just don't want another winter. I'm tired no of cold winters. weather. All right. And also, guys, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We will be constantly updating it as we add merch, Patreon, and live shows. Also, follow us on the Twitterverse, the Universe, the Facebookverse. Just go to social media. Look for us, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes on Facebook, Game of Crimes Podcast on the Instagram. And if you want to help with a pause for the cause, then hey, go to paypal.com and use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com, or go to paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content and getting Steve that new Walker. By the way, Steve, you heard about Chuck Norris? <laughs> what? He's got a new, it's, it's called Walker. You know, you remember that Texas on Walker, Texas Ranger? Yeah, it's yeah. called Ranger Texas Walker now. So <laughs> that's all Chuck. Chuck could still kill me though with one kick, right? Oh, so. isn't that the truth? Hey, listen to and for next week's show, Special episode coming up, and we say this about everyone, but uh, this is special for me. This is personal for you. It is. This is my old partner from the DEA Miami days back in the late 80s, early 90s. Kevin Stevens will be on here. In 1989, Kevin and I were part of an inside arrest team. Uh, Long story short, without going into detail, we got into a gun battle. My partner was shot twice and survived. The informant was shot once. Unfortunately, didn't survive. So we're going to go into the complete detail on that. This interview, as we were doing, and you'll hear it when, when you hear Kevin talk, I think this is the first time he and I have ever really gone through the whole shooting incident. You know, because it, it, just in our culture, you're supposed to suck it up and move on you to the next case. keep it inside, you internalize, yeah. Right, hey, right. The other big challenge we had was Kevin decided to do this fucking podcast while they were mowing his lawn, and we just had things... <laughs> So I'm doing an awful lot of editing to edit out the fucking lawnmower. Uh, uh, hey, but, but anyway, but I'm telling you, it, uh, first time I've heard this story too, and it's like, it will give you goosebumps, right? So everybody stay tuned. We will see you next time on the next episode of Game of Crimes. Game of Crimes.